Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. We're still talking about Thursday, August 4, 1892. I want to talk about the doctors for part of the episode today. Let's start with Dr. Dolan. As I told you, he happened to be driving by around quarter of 12 on August 4. He saw a crowd. He stopped. He went in. He found out there had been a double murder. Dr. Bowen showed him the bodies. And Dr. Dolan claimed in his testimony at the probable cause hearing, three weeks after the murder, on August 25th, he claimed that he could tell almost right away, primarily from the difference in the body temperatures between the two corpses, that Mrs. Borden had died somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes prior to Mr. Borden. Now, if he's telling the truth, and I think there's some reason to be skeptical, you may wonder why I'm saying that, so I should cover it before I forget. The other doctors that the prosecutors brought on board and consulted with, Dr. Wood, Dr. Cheever, Dr. Draper, these guys were at the very top of their profession. Dr. Dolan wasn't. Wood, Cheever, and Draper had been around a lot longer. I believe all three were professors at Harvard Medical School. Draper had many years of experience as the coroner for Suffolk County. Suffolk County is where Boston's located. It's the most populous county in the state. I think he'd been the coroner for 12, 13 years. Dr. Cheever had been a surgeon for many, many years. I think Cheever taught basic surgery to medical students at Harvard. So I think that Draper did not want to be embarrassed by comparison, and I think it's possible that by August 25th, somebody had told him he had consulted with the doctors or they had informed him that they thought there was a 60 to 90 minute gap between the two deaths. And so it's possible that he was just pretending that he knew this on the day of the murders. But let's just assume that he did come to this conclusion. If he did, we know he would have told the police. I mean, he was a take-charge type. He was there directing the officers to do this with the hatchets and do that with the milk and send this up to Cambridge and get this and do that. And it's pretty clear that he was confident enough in his opinions and in his conduct and in the way that he responded to these murders. I think it's pretty clear he was confident enough to tell the police what he was thinking. And he was smart enough to know that this was probably going to be really important evidence. Think about what an impact this would have had on any reasonably smart police officer. You come to the crime scene. You're not a doctor. You haven't felt the bodies. You don't know what the difference in temperature is. You probably notice when you first arrive that Mr. Borden's blood is fresh. It's red. It's still glistening. It may be even dripping off him. You notice Mrs. Borden's blood is black. It's dried. So you probably, as a layperson, you have already some inkling that there was a difference in terms of the times of death. But you don't necessarily know whether it was five or ten minutes or whether it was an hour or two hours. But when you have a doctor telling you, a doctor who you rely on, a doctor who's the county coroner, and he's telling you that he thinks the difference is somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes, that is something that ought to make you stop and think very hard. Because when you first see these murders, when you walk into the house and you see these bodies and you see the carnage and you see the savagery, the brutality of these murders, you think this was done by an insane person, by a madman, by someone who was out of control. But when you're told that there was 60 to 90 minutes between these two attacks, you've got to recalibrate what you're thinking. You have to. 
you have to say to yourself, how do I reconcile what seems to be a couple of rage-filled, mad, insane, maniacal attacks by somebody who's completely out of control with the idea that this person can commit one of these murders and then calm down and collect himself or herself, clean up, apparently, somewhat, and then wait for the next opportunity. This was really important evidence because it would have probably caused the police to step back and think about the evidence a little more carefully. Among other things, at that point, the police have already spoken to Bridget. They've already spoken to Lizzie. We're talking 12.31 p.m. on Thursday. Dr. Dolan has formed this opinion. He's told the police this opinion. The police have already spoken to Lizzie and Bridget. They know that Bridget was outdoors for much of the morning, washing the windows, and they know that Lizzie was indoors. And they also know that Mr. Borden came back probably around quarter of 11 and that he was killed at 11, which means Mrs. Borden would have been killed sometime between probably 9.30 and 10. And they may have already heard from Bridget that Lizzie was standing at the top of the stairs or on the landing or at the edge of her bedroom laughing, laughing at quarter of 11, somewhere between 75 minutes and 45 minutes after her mother had been brutally, horribly murdered. And her stepmother's body is lying face down 10 feet away from her, and she's standing there laughing. This would have had a huge impact on them, or it should have, if they had been paying attention. And it's another reason why it was so important to have a command center, to have one person getting all the information, processing it, or have a couple of people, Fleet and Harrington, or Fleet and somebody else, between the two of them, to receive this information and talk it over. To the extent that Dolan would have told this to Fleet, I'm not sure that Fleet would have been able to piece it together for all the reasons I've told you. The fact that he was not bright, that he was not careful, that he was totally unimaginative, and also from the fact that he wasn't collecting and synthesizing all of the information that the other officers were collecting. At any rate, Dr. Dolan thinks it would be a good idea Based on the talk about poison, Mrs. Borden being afraid she'd been poisoned the day before, Dr. Dolan thought it would be a good idea not only to send up milk samples for Dr. Wood to analyze, but also to remove Mr. and Mrs. Borden's stomachs. There'd be two reasons to do this. The first would be to see what the contents were. If, in fact, Mrs. Borden and Mr. Borden had eaten breakfast at the same time, which is what the police would have heard from Bridget, from Mr. Morse, and that they had both eaten fairly substantial breakfasts, again, same witnesses, same sources would have told them this, then if there was a major difference in terms of the state of digestion in one person's stomach versus the others, that would give them more evidence, important forensic evidence, that would help them determine the time of death and the difference in the times of death. They know Mr. Borden died sometime within a few minutes of 11, one way or the other. And so they had that reference point. So Dr. Dolan, apparently in conjunction with the undertaker, got what he called an undertaking board or undertaker's boards and had them brought down to the Borden house. And I assume in the sitting room, I assume he had Mrs. Borden's body carried down to the sitting room or the dining room, one or the other. He had the body stripped and then he proceeded to remove the stomachs first from Mr. Borden and then from Mrs. Borden. He tied off the ends of the stomach so that the contents wouldn't pour out or slosh out, and then he sealed the two stomachs up in separate glass jars and sent them up to Dr. Wood. 
and asked Dr. Wood to test both for the presence of, of poison, just in case there had been poison, and also to give some opinion as to the difference in the times of deaths, assuming that these two people had eaten meals at the same time, which we know they did. So that was a good move. That was probably the most important thing that Dr. Dolan did. Now, I have a question in my mind about how carefully they searched Mr. and Mrs. Borden's clothing. I know they removed all the easy-to-locate objects out of Mr. Borden's pockets. I mean, you can feel where there's a wallet. You can feel the watch. You can feel change. You can feel that in his pocket. I'm not sure how carefully they searched the pockets. Think about this for a second. If you have a note or a letter in your pocket and your pocket becomes completely saturated with blood, it's possible that that piece of paper gets adhered to the side of the pocket. And if you stick your hand in the pocket, if that note or letter or receipt or whatever it is, is completely soaked with blood and has stuck to the side of the pocket, when you slide your hand in, you might not even know that there's a piece of paper there. So I think, just using my common sense, I think what would have made sense is for the police to have taken the clothing down to the police station and let it dry out and then cut the pockets off, making sure that the clothing was completely dry, and then carefully cut the pockets perhaps down the seam and peel the pockets open to make sure that there there are no notes. That would be particularly important for Mrs. Borden. I just don't know how carefully they searched. And based on the sloppiness of their investigation up to that point, I have no particular confidence that they did a thorough search of the pockets. I don't mean to imply that I believe Lizzie's story that there was a note. I don't think there was a note. I think that was a fabrication, almost certainly a fabrication. But still, it was important to do a thorough search. And I'm not sure they did. What I do know is that after they removed the clothing from Mr. and Mrs. Borden, they had somebody carry it down into the basement and dump it on the floor of the cellar, probably in the washroom. That appears to be where they left everything. And then they didn't think any more of it. They just left the clothing in a pile. After a few days, Mr. Morse asked the police if he could have the clothing buried in the backyard. The police told him to go ahead, so he hired someone to dig a hole, and they threw the clothing into the hole. It wasn't in a bag. It wasn't in a box. It wasn't in any kind of container. They just threw it in in a big lump and piled the dirt back on and left it in the backyard. And then sometime after that, a few days later or a week later or a couple weeks later, the doctors who were working on the case contacted the police who contacted Mr. Morse and said, we need the clothing to Experts want to look at it again, so they dug it all up again. At that point, I think, as far as I know, the only article they took from all the clothing was a handkerchief that had been found next to Mrs. Borden's body in the guest bedroom, a handkerchief, an old handkerchief of Mr. Borden's that Mrs. Borden often used for dusting, and they kept that, and I think the rest of the stuff they went ahead and reburied. But this time, I believe they put it in a box. The bodies, after these partial autopsies had been done, the bodies were sewed back up, the torsos were sewed back up, and then the bodies, for some reason, remained in the Borden house overnight. Thursday night, they were in the house. I don't know if they were dressed, if they were just under a sheet. I don't know whether they were on the dining room table or whether there were separate undertaker boards for each of them. It isn't clear. It isn't clear whether the undertaker brought them back to his business on Friday and dressed them and put them in coffins and then returned them to the Borden home on Saturday. All I can tell you is those two corpses lay in the Borden house 
Thursday night, and they were there all night. And they may have been there all the way from Thursday until they were removed after the funeral on Saturday. There was a funeral Saturday morning. 75 people, give or take, attended it. A few relatives of the Borden family, a few relatives of Mrs. Borden's family, a number of business associates of Mr. Borden. I believe it was an open casket funeral. I think that the undertaker simply turned Mr. Borden's head to the left so that you couldn't see the half of his face that had been chopped off. I understand that Lizzie kissed his face, obviously the right side of his face. Mrs. Holmes, the family friend, Mr. and Mrs. Holmes were friends of the Bordens, and Mrs. Holmes testified that Lizzie cried when she said goodbye to her father. The service was fairly brief, I believe, and after the service, the undertaker took the coffins down to the burial ground, to the cemetery, and the family and, I guess, people that were very close to the family followed in carriages. For some reason, they didn't do a graveyard service. They didn't actually watch the coffins go into the ground. I think the family party and the close family friends returned to the home without actually walking into the cemetery. Here we get to something that's also quite ghoulish. Pillsbury. Pillsbury was the attorney general for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and he had first crack at the case. He was the top prosecutor for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and as I understand it, under Massachusetts law at that time, it was his case if he wanted it. If he declined to do it for whatever reason, then it would go to Knowlton. Now, Pillsbury, I believe, also had the option of doing the case in cooperation or collaboration with Knowlton. And so as of August and for several months thereafter, until Pillsbury got sick and was told by his doctor that he could not try the case. So from August until that time in the spring of 1893, Pillsbury and Knowlton were planning to do this trial together. Knowlton was doing a lot of the nuts and bolts. He was doing the initial hearings. He was sort of the go-between for the police department in Pillsbury. And he and Pillsbury were consulting with each other about how to handle the case. So Pillsbury tells Knowlton, and this may have been at Knowlton's request. It may have been at the police department's request or the doctor's request. And this was simply Pillsbury saying yes. So it isn't clear whether this was Pillsbury's idea or not. But at any rate, Pillsbury gives the official order that the bodies not be buried, that they be brought into this holding area in the cemetery, this place in the cemetery that was used as a storage base for bodies when the weather was too cold to dig a grave. So people that died in January, February, when the ground was frozen solid, would be stuck in this vault. It was like a big vault in the cemetery. And when the ground started to soften and and the weather got warmer and they could dig a grave, that's when the body would go into the ground. But this was August. So first of all, there were no other bodies in there. And second of all, any body that was put in there was going to decompose pretty rapidly. So Pillsbury told the police and the undertaker and the doctors and Knowlton that the body should go into this waiting area and that as soon as all these high-powered doctors, Cheever and Draper and, and then Dolan, of course, and maybe a few others were all available to do the autopsy, that they should get together and do it down, I believe, at the cemetery. So they had to wait a week. And when they finally got to it, I think it was Thursday, August 11th. And at that time, the bodies were pretty badly decomposed. The doctors testified that both Mr. and Mrs. Borden's brains had liquefied. I think the bodies were bloating. It was probably right at the very end of the stage where they could do any kind of meaningful 
autopsy. What they determined was that at the time of death, both Mr. and Mrs. Borden were in pretty good health, considering that this was 1892. There was no cancer. There was no advanced heart disease. There was no advanced pulmonary disease. I don't think either of them was diabetic. I think they were actually in pretty good shape, considering Of course, they also wanted to figure out what to do with these skulls because they were going to need to examine the skulls pretty carefully. And somebody decided that these bodies should be decapitated. So both Mr. and Mrs. Borden were decapitated. The heads were cut off and somebody, one of the doctors, brought these heads back to his office or his laboratory and proceeded to essentially boil the heads and scrape them until all the hair, all the skin, all the flesh, all the cartilage was removed so that these skulls looked like the skulls that people dig out of the ground at archaeological sites. This was important for the medical experts because it gave them a much better ability to determine how many blows had been struck, how many blows had been struck to particular parts of the head. And also, very importantly, they were able to determine how big the, and the murder weapon had been. And they, that was how they ruled out the shingle hatchet. They determined that the blade from one end of the cutting edge to the other was at most three inches and a quarter. Maybe it was three and a half inches down to two and three quarters, something like that. They thought it was either three or three and a half inches, and that was quite a bit smaller than the shingle hatchet. So I think the only way they really could have determined that was, unfortunately, by cutting off the heads, boiling them down, and then sticking these various hatchet blades into the wounds in the skull to see what fit and what did not fit. So even though they never said could say definitively whether the handleless hatchet was the murder weapon, what they were able to say, and they did say at trial, is that the handleless hatchet could have been the murder weapon. It fit. They fit it into the wounds. It fit all the wounds, whereas the other two hatchets did not. But it was a pretty appalling, gruesome, ghoulish sight to have these victims' skulls brought into the courtroom and used as exhibits in the trial. And this was the one time that Lizzie really showed emotion. When these skulls were brought in and they were being used in the testimony, she fainted. Among other things, the doctors also were able to measure the holes in the skulls. The hole in the back of Mrs. Borden's skull was about five inches by four inches, and in Mr. Borden's skull on the left side, I think it was four by three, something like that. So these were enormous, enormous gaping holes caused by repeated blows with a very heavy, sharp hatchet. So think about what the police had for information on Thursday evening. And it's a good time to talk about that because I also want to mention that Thursday afternoon, things get a bit fuzzy for us. The police reports stop giving us any specific information after early afternoon. Probably three o'clock is about the last entry we get in terms of what the police were up to, except for when Harrington brought Bents over to do that identification. But otherwise, it's like they had burned themselves out. It's like they were so stunned or burned out that they didn't know what to do. They just really didn't have any entries. Let's just take what they knew as of Thursday evening and talk about that. They knew that Lizzie had been accused by three people of trying to buy poison at a local drugstore. They knew that there had been talk about Mrs. Borden being afraid of being poisoned. They knew that Lizzie did not have a good relationship with her stepmother. They knew that Lizzie had behaved strangely when they questioned her right after the murders. They had not seen any tears. They had not seen any real signs of grief that she had been cold and in command. 
that her story about being up in the loft didn't ring true. They thought that was strange. By Thursday evening, nobody had still come forward to acknowledge or claim authorship of the note. That was sounding more and more implausible. The newspapers had been out for two or three hours and they had talked about the note and nobody had come forward. It didn't look like Mrs. Borden had ever left the house. She was found in her house dress. It started to look like Lizzie had either committed the murders herself or was somehow involved. Because if she was up in her bedroom between 9.30 and 10.30, she would have heard the murders happen. There's no way she could not have heard them. And if she was downstairs, it was impossible to imagine that someone could have gotten past her and gotten upstairs and killed Mrs. Borden. Because no matter where she sat downstairs, she would almost certainly have heard and or seen somebody come in the back door. And remember, they somebody coming in the back door could not go up the back steps and then walk from the back of the house to the front of the house on the second floor. The person had to go from that side or back door through the sitting room, through the kitchen, into the sitting room, and then to the front hall and up the stairs. So they thought no matter what her story was, It didn't make sense. She had to know. She either had to see the killer come in or she had to be upstairs and either commit the murder or be aware of it. Despite all of this evidence, not to mention the fact that Bridget and Mrs. Churchill both confirm that the guest bedroom door was open at 1130 when they went up, and despite proof from Bridget that Lizzie was upstairs at 1045, at least 45 minutes, maybe as many as 75 minutes after Mrs. Borden had been murdered, 10 or 12 feet from Mrs. Borden's body. Despite all that, they didn't ask her for her dress. They didn't interview her at length. And then when Emma got home, probably around 4.30, because she took the 3.29 train from New Bedford, which would have gotten her back, I think, in about a half an hour and then maybe 15 to 30 minutes to get up to the house. I don't think there's any evidence they questioned her. If they did, it wasn't reflected in the police reports. It wasn't reflected in the testimony. And that's incredible. Think about that. Think about that. They suspect Lizzie, and they know that Lizzie has a very close relationship with Emma. And to the extent that they know about the money grievances, about the resentment over the money and the purchase of the property five years earlier, they would know, probably almost certainly know that Emma was just as angry, if not angrier. They would have had to suspect or believe, if they thought about it, that there had been letters going back and forth during the two weeks that Emma was away. In fact, Knowlton asks Lizzie about this at the inquest, and Lizzie admits there were letters back and forth. I don't think they asked to see the letters. I don't think they split the, the sisters up to interview them. I think they let these sisters get together and probably coordinate their stories. If there was, I mean, if there's any reason to believe that Emma was in on this or that Emma was trying to protect Lizzie, they should not have let them get together and talk before the police had an opportunity to question them. Remember, we've got a 41-year-old woman and a 32-year-old woman, these two sisters, and they choose essentially to share a bedroom. That's really what they're doing, or pretty close to it. They're like Siamese twins, emotionally. And their living setup is like the equivalent of Siamese twins if you could have bedrooms that were like Siamese twins. I mean, you've got a big bedroom, and then you've got an annex. And you can't get to the annex, the little bedroom where where Emma slept, without going through the big bedroom. I mean, they had a guest bedroom that had its own entrance. Emma could have said to Mr. and Mrs. Borden, I really want my own bedroom, and I'm going to take over the guest bedroom. If there are times where you have guests visiting and you want them to be in the guest bedroom rather than up on that spare bedroom on the third floor, 
I'll move out for a few days, however long it is, but when they're gone, I'll move back in. And Mr. and Mrs. Borden wouldn't have said no. I mean, it was really Mr. Borden's call. I don't think he would have said no. I can't believe he would have said no. Emma and Lizzie chose to live this way. And it may have been to give their father the message, look at how we're living. Look at how awkward this is for us. You've got all this money and here I am 42 and or 41 and Lizzie's 30. We're sharing a bedroom. This is because you're too cheap to buy us a nice house. So they may have been living this way in some ways, at least in part, to send their father a message about the sacrifices they were making and about how unreasonable it was. But they may also have been living this way because they were so close emotionally, that they were so bonded, that they were so much on the same team, that the way they looked at their father and stepmother was so similar, that they were allied, and that this was what felt most comfortable for them. Remember, it's almost certain that this living arrangement was their choice. And I will also tell you that Holmes picks up on all of this. This is really obvious to Holmes. It didn't seem to register with the police, which is surprising, but not surprising, considering how they handled this investigation in every other respect. Anyway, we will resume next week with a little bit of discussion of Friday and then Saturday, the search of the house on Saturday after the funeral. Big search of the house. That's important. And then Sunday was a huge event. I don't know if we'll get to the Sunday event next episode. If not, It will be the episode after that. I'm not going to tell you what it was because that would spoil the surprise. Anyway, thank you for listening, as always. I hope you join me next week. And until then, take care.